As you have already heard and have seen in your bulletin, we'll be looking at Galatians 5 together, verses 16 through 26. So feel free to turn there as we read and listen uh, to God's word together. This is Galatians 5, beginning at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Thus far God's word. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we are dependent on you. Please change us this evening from the inside out. Help us to walk with you. Please bear fruit in our hearts and in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, because we haven't uh, been reading through Galatians together or preaching through Galatians, I thought it would be helpful to give a little bit of background, a little bit of context before we just jump into this letter uh, almost at the very end of it. So it seems that the primary reason that Paul has written this letter to the saints or to the churches in the region of Galatia is to address the false teaching of the Judaizers and their notion that circumcision is required for justification. As far as when this letter was written, we don't have the precise details on that, but uh, it could have been shortly after the Jerusalem Council. You read about that in Acts 15, where circumcision for justification is uh, a key topic of that uh, debate and discussion and the outcome of it. It could have also been later, maybe after uh, Acts 18, Paul is said to have visited the disciples and strengthened the brothers uh, in that, in part of his missionary journey then. Though hugely doctrinally important, the idea of justification by faith alone and not by works, uh, this is, is probably one of the main things that I think of when I think of the letter to the Galatians, and it would probably be the same for many of you. But this letter is not limited only to the topic of justification. The scope is broader than that. Um, it deals with the Christian life. It deals with uh, the freedom that is to be had in Christ and through Christ, that life post-justification, post-conversion is to be lived in the Spirit. It's one uh, in which we are told to walk by the Spirit. And so that's going to be our focus this evening, looking at this passage that we just heard together. 
So as we look at this passage, uh, you'll see that the first uh, bullet in your sermon outline is conflict. We're going to be looking at a conflict. And so we need to, as we, as we look at walking by the Spirit, we need to know in what context, in, in what situation are we called to walk by the Spirit. And it's one of conflict. If I were to say something like, tomorrow we're going to go boating together. And that's all the information I give you. That's just not enough information because you wouldn't know if you need uh, to pack a lunch. You don't know if you need a swimming uh, suit. You don't know if you need um, a fishing rod and a tackle box or a life preserver and a helmet if we were going whitewater rafting or something like that. But those, those details are important. And so the, the important details that we have for uh, how to walk in the spirit or where we'll be walking in the spirit is, is in the context of conflict. And we know that we are at war. We're at war with the world and the flesh and the devil. And tonight we're going to be zooming in on a particular battle within that war, and that is the battle against the flesh. So, looking now at our passage, Paul begins with the word but. Well, why is he doing this? He's drawing some sort of contrast. And though we didn't look at it, if you looked at the uh, verses leading up to this passage, you would see that he's talking about the great freedoms that we have in Christ. And those freedoms uh, that we enjoy, they are not to be used for self-serving purposes to the detriment or harm of others. No, instead they're to be used to love one another, to serve one another. And so he's, he's shifting uh, from from doing harm to one another and saying like, no, this is, this is how we're going to, to proceed. So in continuing on in verse 16, we read, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. First, we are to walk by the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the third person of the Godhead. Uh, as Tim preached uh, earlier in 1 John, when he talked about walking in light versus walking in darkness. We know that walking isn't a matter of putting one foot in front of the other just to get from point A to point B. It's more about a way of life, a manner of conducting oneself. So good ways to walk um, according to God's word. We see that we can walk in the light. We can walk in the truth. We can walk in wisdom. We can walk by faith. We can walk in love. Uh, bad ways to walk are, are also outlined. We can walk in darkness. We can walk um, in idleness. So we can also walk according to the way of a person. We see this in, in uh, Colossians 2, 6 through 7. We read, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is what walking in Jesus looks like, abounding in thanksgiving, being established in the faith, being rooted in him. And I think that seeing what walking in Jesus looks like can help us with this idea of walking in the spirit, walking by the spirit. And the idea here, I think, is that we need to walk in humble dependence on him and go the way that he leads So then the rest of this sentence follows, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh here is not some reference to our physical bodies. It's it's more than that. It's different than that. It's not, uh, not our physical bodies. It's not soft tissue wrapped around our skeletal systems or anything like that. We're talking about Um, our sin nature, our sin-sick human nature, and its me-centered interests. 
Now, the way that this reads in the ESV with walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, it sounds like an if-then statement, like if you do this, then this will follow. Kind of like if I were to say, bring your umbrella and your boots when we go for a walk in the rain and you won't get wet. One causes and brings about the other. And in this sense, that's true. If we are living by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, living in the strength of the Spirit, following his guidance, then we won't be giving in to the desires of the flesh. That would definitely be the case. Uh, according to one commentator that I came across, and also kind of looking at some of these words a little more um, in depth, it also seems like it could be a dual command, uh, walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Uh, This option makes sense as well. We're commanded in other places in Scripture to do what is good or avoid what's evil. So um, I find it difficult, really, to nail down which of these uh, particular options Paul is intending to communicate here. But that might not really cause a significant problem for us. Because the way I see it is that they're so closely linked or intertwined that even if they are two commands and we have to figure out, well, how is this to be accomplished? It's largely the same answer either way. My hope is that we'll have a sense of how to walk by the Spirit and what it means to not gratify the desires of the flesh uh, by the end of our time together this evening. Moving on to verse 17. We see the mutual exclusiveness of these two desires. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. They, against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The spirit and the flesh are at odds. They are incompatible. They're like oil and water. They're not friends. They're not taking a a ride to the same destination. They are uh, not equal alternatives They are polar opposites. One is suitable to the pathway home to our Lord and Savior, and the other one left to its own devices apart from the intervention of uh, the redemptive work of God would take us 180 degrees in the opposite direction, sprinting down the wide road toward eternal destruction. My flesh is not my friend, and your flesh is not your friend. The flesh wants things like power and pleasure and its own praise. Well, what does the spirit want? What's the contrast? What does God want is really the question here. Uh, Read Ephesians 1. There are many glorious truths there. And and what is the purpose? What is God's will behind those glorious realities? Well, it's, it's all for his glory. It's to the praise of his glory, the praise of his glorious grace. Other, uh, the pursuit of his glory is supreme and um, contributing things under that that he desires, he desires to do good to us. Um, in Romans eight twenty eight, he works all things for our good. Also in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, the will of God is your sanctification. These are things that he wants, he wants to do that contribute to the praise of his glory. The flesh and the spirit, they want totally different things. And we should want what God wants. God certainly wants what's best. There's a battle going on within every believer every day. Brother and sisters, do you feel it? Is this your experience, your reality, any given 
day, any given moment. The two are at odds, but the power is with the Lord. He is our hope. I mentioned earlier that we need to answer the question, uh, how do I not gratify the desires of the flesh? So let's start with the wrong way to go about it. Paul answers this earlier in the letter, in Galatians 3.3, he sternly questions the reader. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Unlike before, the flesh here, I think, is referring to physical bodies because he's, he's talking about the idea of circumcision and so that pertains to physical bodies. And that's uh, one of the main issues he's dealing with with the, the Galatians and, and countering, act, uh, countering the false teaching that they've been receiving. So warring against the sinful flesh by means of the bodily flesh uh, is futile. It's a recipe for failure. You cannot battle... Uh, do this battle in your own strength, in the strength of your body. A similar idea is expressed elsewhere. If we looked at Colossians 2, verses 20 through 23, this is what we read. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So severity to the body and asceticism are of no value in this battle against the flesh. None whatsoever. So then we have to go back to the question. We think, okay, well then how do I do this? How do I not gratify the desires of the flesh? How do I battle against this flesh? Well, it's the Spirit's work. I don't mean some let go, let God notion, like just, yeah, don't worry about it, lie in your beds, do nothing, and wait for God to perfect you over time. That's, that's not the case. We're instructed uh, not to be lazy or idle in the spirit. We're told to walk in the spirit. And so uh, while we're called to walk, it is primarily, though, the spirit's work. Paul's letter to the Philippians, after telling them to continue to obey and work out their salvation in fear and trembling, he gives them this reason. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The strength that we have is his. The will to do what is right comes from him. The ability to do what is right comes from him. It's all from him. So, We're called to live in light of what he's already done in our hearts. We're to be good stewards of the work that he has done in the past and the work that he's doing, certainly. So as a result of those things, we should live them out in reality. We should walk with him. So go through life mindful of him. Have our our minds set on things that are above where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. Talk to him in prayer. Pray that God's kingdom would come and his will would be done in our hearts, in our lives, in our thoughts, in our actions. Read his word. Believe that it's true. Trust the God who said these things, who had them written down for our conviction and for our hope, for equipping us for righteousness. Hear his word taught and preached. Meditate on his word. Have honest conversations with your brothers and sisters. Be spurred on to love and good works. Be sharpened by one another. All these things are meant to keep our eyes on Christ. The Spirit's work is to glorify the Son. And as we behold the Son by the power of the Spirit, we are conformed 
more and more to the image of the Son, growing from one degree of glory to the next. Let's look at verse 18 now. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Wow, that's a complicated idea. Um, A lot could probably be said about this. But given the context of the letter, given what Paul has been explaining about the law being a guardian until Christ came and the law being to lead people to Christ and, and that going back to the law would be submitting again to slavery and a slavery from which Christ has set us free, there is some contrast to be made between life under the law and being led by the Spirit. So externally, they may look similar, being led by the Spirit and living as one under the law, at least parts of it. However, I think there are two particular distinctions that come to mind. One is the power behind it, which we've kind of already talked about some. It's the Spirit's work, Spirit's power, Spirit-enabled, and the other is the heart behind it. And so for the heart aspect, I think that Romans 7, 6 is helpful, And that reads as follows, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. We're not merely checking boxes to be able to say, oh, I checked all the boxes, I followed all the rules. Checking boxes for the sake of saying that you checked the boxes isn't out of a heart of love. Let's look at 1 Timothy 1.5. Paul here writes, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul knows that the goal is not some sort of external compliance. It needs to come from the heart. He knows that God looks at the heart. The inside matters. So the way we serve is to be different. The law is written on our new hearts. And so we should live in light of what God has done in our hearts. Children, this is an analogy that I I love to tell my my children at home. This is from uh, author David Murray, and he, he gives this analogy. So imagine you get up one morning, you wander into the bathroom, you flip on the light, and you look at yourself in the mirror, and what you see is that your hair is standing up on end, and you have a little bit of ketchup in the corner of your mouth, and maybe some ice cream from the previous evening on your chin that's hardened overnight because you just didn't take the time to to wash up last night like your parents told you to. And uh, you see how disheveled you are. And a family member walks down the hall, and they look in the door and see you standing in front of the mirror. And the next thing they see is you're either unhanging the mirror from the wall or you're unscrewing the brackets that hold it there and you rip the mirror off the wall you start rubbing it on your head or trying to scrape the goo off your face with the mirror they would think you're crazy and you would be crazy for doing it that that's not what a mirror is for a mirror shows you what's there it shows you what's wrong it shows you the problem but it doesn't fix the solution you need soap and water you need a hairbrush and a washcloth The law is similar. The law doesn't fix you. It points out the problems. It condemns you, beats you, gives rise to further disobedience. The spirit, however, is what changes you. Christ uses the word of God to wash his bride and present us as faultless. For the law alone will not do this. So we know that we're involved in a conflict The spirit is against the flesh and vice versa. Our hope is in God, in his work, through his spirit, to change us, to equip us, to guide us. As a result, we're to walk in him and live in him and live for him. 
Moving on now to the next bullet. Works of the flesh. We already talked about the desires. Now we're moving on to the works. We're moving from the internal now to the external. So verse 19 now. The works of the flesh are evident. They are observable. The things that people do out of a desire to please themselves, to please their own self-interest, their own sinful natures, uh, can often be seen. Not always, but quite frequently. I think this is similar to the idea that Jesus was teaching when he said that you can recognize a tree by its fruit. You see that bad fruit comes from diseased trees and good fruit comes from healthy trees. And generally you don't see one on the other. We have some fruit trees in our backyard at home. And there's a peach tree that has it's had bugs and it has fungus on the leaves and the, the leaves aren't green, they're all gnarled and the peaches, what peaches there are, are very minimal and they're, they're all shriveled up, they're ugly, it's bad fruit. But on the healthy trees, the mature trees, they're bearing good fruit the way it should. And the flesh is like a diseased tree and what it bears is bad fruit. Paul goes on to list some of these works of the flesh and how much easier often is it to uh, be taught by an example rather than a strict like dictionary definition. And that's what Paul's giving us here. He's giving a, us a list of examples, not an exhaustive list, but a helpful one. And, and despite, it is, despite the fact that it is a lengthy list, um, it's not exhaustive. And, and we know that by the middle of verse 21, which, uh, where Paul wraps up the list and he says, and things like these. So we know that he could have gone on, but he stopped there, and so we'll stop there as well. So the list is pretty straightforward. We'll just look at them now uh, with just a couple remarks along the way from some commentators that I uh, encountered. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. So the first three are sins of a, a sexual nature. Following those is idolatry and sorcery. Or yeah, sorcery. Uh, these are more particularly religious or s- spiritual. Uh, natured sin. Certainly all sins are of a spiritual nature, but these uh, are particularly in that way. And then the rest have to do more so with human relationships and human interactions. There's enmity and strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. And none of these should be any part of our thinking or how we live So as we encounter them, as we encounter respectable sins, as we encounter any sort of sins, any outworkings of our flesh, uh, let's ask God to root these out of our hearts from where they spring. Paul closes out this subsection with a loving warning that he's given before. At the end of verse 21, we read, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Wow, that's a strong warning. It's not, not the first time he gave it. That's, uh, he, he's reminding them of something that he's warned them of before. And so someone might think, wow, if I've done any of these things, any of the things on this list or the things that fall into the uh, and, and things like these category, well, how am I going to inherit the kingdom of God? And in a sense, that's true. That is definitely true. Sin separates us from God. It doesn't matter if it's on this list or, or in, the, in things like these category. And all deserve his, his just wrath. But the sense of, of what we're looking at here, where we see the word 
do, people who do these things, those who do such things, this is more than just a one-time occurrence. The, the idea here is that it's more a pattern of behavior, a way of, of living, a, a practice and habit of doing such things. So someone may ask, well, okay, but who will see the kingdom? Well, it's those who are born again. It's, it's those that Jesus talked about in the Beatitudes, the blessed ones, those who will see God and see heaven and see the kingdom. They're the ones who are going to inherit the kingdom. Maybe you wonder if that's you. And if you're wondering if that's you, if you will see the kingdom, if you fall into this category, then hear this. All people are sinners. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's perfect standards. As a result, we deserve his just, holy wrath. We deserve to be punished for that. However, Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me, like you. Coming into the world, he lived a perfect life, the life that we should have lived, the life that we cannot live due to our sinful fallen state. He took God's wrath upon himself on the cross in the place of all who would come to him for mercy. He didn't stay dead. He died, but he didn't stay dead. He was raised to life again. He was resurrected. And so I say, as Paul said to the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Moving on now to the third and final bullet, beginning with verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. As we look at the conflict between the Spirit and the flesh, and we consider how uh, fleshly desires play out in real life, we're, we're now going to look away from the works of the flesh and focus now more on the fruit of the Spirit. It's not called the work of those who are in the Spirit, rather the fruit of the Spirit. And the Spirit bears these things, these attributes and characteristics in our hearts, in the hearts of those in whom he indwells. Do you have the Spirit? If you're in Christ, yes, you do. Absolutely. If you are our brothers and sisters in Christ, part of God's family, you do. You do have the Spirit. And this is no small thing. Whoever believes in Jesus has the Spirit. In Romans 6, we read that the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is the same Spirit who lives in you. The Spirit of the triune God who created everything from nothing, who planned and accomplished redemption for sinners, who regenerated us and gave us new hearts is still in us and with us, changing us and growing us in greater and greater reflections, greater and greater image bearers, more and more looking like and conforming to Jesus. This fruit that Paul lists, is it not a description of our great Savior, Jesus Christ? Has there ever been someone who has been more loving, more joyful, more peacemaking, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, and self-controlled than him. He's everything that we are to be and aren't. Yet by his spirit's powerful work in us, he is restoring his own image and likeness in us, his creatures. Similar to the previous list, the works of the flesh, this isn't an exhaustive list either. 
It's evident by how he ends the list. Against such things there is no law. It seems that there are other things that could be added, but we'll just focus on what he had, uh, what, what Paul lists here. As we looked at the internal and external aspects of the, the flesh, both its desires and then how it's uh, worked out in, in our lives, uh, I think that there are internal and external aspects to the, the Spirit's work as well. I believe that first, these fruits of the, this fruit of the Spirit is first heart attributes that then result in a manifestation of good works. Let me, let me say that again. That these are first heart attributes that then play out in our lives in, manifest, in a manifestation of good works. So let's look at them quickly, again with some help of uh, some commentators I came across. Love. We heard a lot about that this morning. It's who God is. It's the greatest of commandments. It's the fulfilling of the law. It's enabled because God first loved us. And we could go on and on about this. This, is, this whole uh, overview sermon uh, on this passage is more like at the 30,000 foot level. We could go way down into the weeds and spend so much time on so many things here. But in a way, I think that love kind of encapsulates the rest of the, the fruit of the spirit that we're going to look at. So let's continue on with those. Joy. Some commentators talk about this being delight in God, a constant delight in God. A happiness that comes from embracing his promises and realizing the, the, the spiritual realities that are ours in and through Christ. If we have this joy, are, are we content? Or do we complain and grumble? May God give us a greater delight in him. If you struggle with, with joy or want more joy or want to think more about joy, I recommend a study in the book of Philippians. It's a topic that's uh, in focus there. Peace. This comes in at least two forms. First and foremost, we have peace with God through the reconciling work of his son on our behalf. And second, we have peace with one another. We're called to be peacemakers. This isn't to be confused with peacekeepers. It's not uh, something that... um, we want to be confused about. We want true peace. We want peace that aligns with God's will. We're not called to bury our heads in the sand or whitewash our circumstances or, or just refuse to uh, see the boat ever rock. No, that's not the case. But we want true peace, true, good, blessed peace as God would desire in our lives and in our hearts. Patience. Are we long-suffering? Kindness. Are we a blessing to others? Are we inclined to be a blessing to and to serve others? Goodness. We know that no one but the Father in heaven is good. And as one author pointed out, good in our modern English uh, usage is not that high of a compliment. We kind of have like poor and fair and good and great, wonderful, and and the list just kind of goes on and and good's just kind of down here. But when we're talking about the goodness of God and being good and God being good, he is through and through good, perfectly good. This is no small thing. He is perfection. And as people who are his, we want to be godly and so we we ought to want uh, to be good, to love what is good and to do good to others. Faithfulness. Do we follow through? 
gentleness, when you're in the right, or you think you're right, or you're in the position of power, or you're wronged by someone, do we respond with gentleness? And is that true of me? Is that true of you? Let's grow in gentleness. Self-control. Do we have restraint in all things? Do I raise my voice with my children when I just need to speak the truth in love? Do I pursue my own hobbies, my own entertainment, my own pleasures, uh, my own comfort to the neglect of serving others? Am I ever governed by my fears and anxieties, my emotions to the neglect of glorifying God and loving others? If we're honest, we could probably admit to falling short in many of these areas and not having hearts that really reflect and embrace these realities. So when we realize that, let's repent. Let's look to Christ. Let's focus on him and pray for more conformity to the image of our Savior, Jesus. As I already said, I believe that these are heart attitudes that the Spirit's work bears in us and that we live out our actions in light of what he has done. They go together. We can't have one and not the other. It wouldn't be okay. It wouldn't be satisfying to God for us to be calm and seemingly peaceful on the outside in the midst of turmoil. And then on the inside, we're either anxious or seething with anger. That's not compatible. Likewise, the, the opposite shouldn't be true. We shouldn't want the good of others on the inside and then not be willing to lift a finger to actually serve someone. That's not what God wants either. We, we so desperately need his help. However, just to be clear, if we walk out of here tonight and, and we think, wow, okay, this is what I have to do. I have to do this and this thing and this thing and, and, and you have a list of 15 things that, that you need to do particularly in your own strength, then, then we've missed it. This is heart work. First and form, foremost, this is heart work. The flesh and diseased trees, they, they don't just decide to bear good fruit. Someone with an orchard doesn't see a diseased tree and then just glue or tape uh, good-looking fruit onto these awful mangled limbs. No, they need to, the, the tree to be healthy. And so... Uh, to use another analogy, we are the branches. This was mentioned earlier. We are the branches and Christ is the vine. We need to abide in him and, and apart from him, we can do nothing. We need Christ. We need the spirit. We need God's work to do this in us. What he did in the past, what he's doing in the present, and we can look forward to what he's going to do in the future. He will finish the work that he began in us. Verse 24 now. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So who are those who belong to Christ? Well, from John 17, we know that those who belong to Christ are the ones that the Father has given him. And we read some details about them here. They've crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And this confirms what we heard earlier about uh, the flesh not being our physical bodies because that would mean that those who belong to Jesus have, have crucified their bodies. But no, the flesh here is sinful human nature along with its passions and desires. And so when those were, were put to death and as they're put to death, that might seem painful. It might feel like we're giving something up that was so much a part of our lives at one point. But what we're giving up is, is rubbish. God has something 
so much better for us. He's such a loving father who knows what's best and wants what's best for us. The battle is ongoing, but the the flesh's lingering influence is not ultimate and will not have the victory. Paul closes this section with a restatement of his main point, a final exhortation, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Though the wording is slightly different, it seems that he's just emphasizing what we already read and heard from verse 16 and 18. Here, however, he's using the first person plurals, us and we. He's including himself. And so we often uh, recognize that the struggles that we have might be the same kinds of struggles as, as our brothers and sisters. Nothing has seized us except that which is common to man. So let's encourage one another. We're on the same road together. Let's build each other up as we share these experiences, these difficult temptations and trials on our journey to our heavenly home. As we live by the Spirit, we aren't just to remember the Spirit on occasion and live in our own strength or kind of go back and forth. No, it's ongoing life in the Spirit all the time. We're called to keep in step with the Spirit. Children, if you're on a hike or if you're crossing a busy street with your parents or crossing a parking lot with lots of cars moving and parked and obstacles here and there, we, we, you, you want to keep up with your, your parents. They want you safe. They want you to keep in step. So they might say, hurry up, come along. Pick up the pace a little bit. Hold you by the hand and bring you along to make sure you're safe. We're called to keep in step with the Spirit. We don't want to wander off. We don't want to go our own way. We don't want to fall behind. Let's keep in the Spirit. It's His strength, though, that allows that to happen. He won't lose any who are His. It's a glorious truth. Let's stick with Him as He leads us. Lastly, Paul reminds his readers not to fall back into fleshly living. Verse 26 now. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We have one final reminder, not to give in to the desires of the flesh. We're called to not use our freedom for ourselves, but to love one another, to serve one another, to live lives of love. So as we come to a close, let us walk in the Spirit. Be led by the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Let's walk the road with Him, the narrow road between the ditch of external um, rule-following moralism with no heart on one side and and flesh-gratifying self-centeredness on the other. Let's pray for heart change and growth. Pray for the ability and the desire to do what's right. And pursue living this out in real ways with all the grace that God has given us. Kids, remember the fruit analogy. If you're driving down the road with your parents and you see an orchard or you're walking through the produce section of a grocery store and you see fruit, think about fruit. Think about the fruit that, bear, that God bears in our lives, in our hearts and then in our actions and how he enables us to live lives of love for him. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would use your word, use your power to sanctify us. That we would look more and more like your son. It's in his name we pray, amen. Let's take some time to think about and meditate what we've just heard. You can praise God for the Spirit's work in your life. 
being thankful to him to not battle against the flesh on your own. Consider what fruit you want God to bear in your life and ask him to do that work in your heart.